Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Thanks, everyone, for joining this 13th episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, I'll be sharing the audio portion of my webinar discussion with Bruce Grucock. Bruce is the chairman of Peter Kiewit Sons and previously served as their chief executive officer. Kiewit is one of the largest privately held construction companies in the world, and it's a company I've been fortunate enough to work with for years. So let's just turn to my interview with Bruce. I am thrilled to have with us this week uh, Bruce Grucock. Bruce is the chairman of Peter Kiewit and Sons um, and uh, former chief executive officer, someone I've gotten to know fairly well over the last, I guess it's been almost nine or 10 years mm -hmm. uh, that I've had the pleasure of interacting with Bruce in business contexts um, and, and a little bit socially as well. Uh, and I've just really enjoyed learning from Bruce. Uh, he's a wonderful thinker, an accomplished executive, been a wonderful leader in his community as well as uh, in the corporate world uh, participating in things like the business roundtable as well as the Omaha Business Ethics Alliance and obviously involved with Kiwit and all of their activities so I am absolutely thrilled to have Bruce with us but before we begin uh, a bit of self-promotion uh, as should be uh, uh, expected for those of you that are uh, regulars here on this webinar series so uh, my book think for yourself is coming out this Tuesday uh, and I am very much hoping that you will take the time to pre-order it uh, here today or tomorrow or Monday uh, or buy it once it's released on Tuesday. Uh, the purpose of this webinar series was really to illustrate some of the lessons from the book. Um, and in fact, as I'll describe shortly, uh, there's, a, there's a short story, a couple pages about uh, Bruce and Kiwit and Bruce visiting my class at Yale when I was teaching a class on business ethics. Uh, so we'll come back to that. Um, but I also am happy to say that next week, this webinar series will have Greg Hayes. Uh, I was going to say chairman and CEO of United Technologies. That's no longer the case. Now he is CEO of Raytheon Technologies. Uh, and Greg was the chief executive responsible for taking United Technologies, which was one of the largest conglomerates, uh, diversified uh, enterprise with operations in elevators with Otis, air conditioning with Carrier, and then obviously their aerospace business with Pratt and & Whitney and Collins. Uh, not only did he spin off multiple businesses, uh, but then he took the remaining aerospace-related enterprises and merged them with uh, Raytheon to form Raytheon Technologies. And so I'm thrilled that next week Greg will be my guest Thursday instead of Friday and at 1 p.m. instead of 10 a.m. So uh, please do tune in. Uh, I think Greg's a wonderful executive, someone we can all learn from. Uh, and then in terms of a recap, uh, last week uh, we had Reince Priebus uh, who talked a little bit about politics and uh, the dynamics of the Republican National Committee. There is a replay available. Uh, by the way, all replays will be available via my website, which is just my last name, www.manshramani.com. Uh, but we had Reince. Uh, before that, we had uh, the gentleman thief, Apollo Robbins, who I profile in my book, who's really a master of deception and where you pay attention uh, to, to help you navigate where you focus. Uh, before that, we had Jim Grant, obviously a financial and economics commentator, but uh, that replay is available. 
Uh, there was Kishore Mabubani talking about how China, whether China has won, uh, so to say, and he was a diplomat, served as president of the UN Security Council, uh, and so had some unique insights. Tom Petrie, uh, who I believe actually Bruce knows, uh, but Tom, uh, wonderful oil industry executive with decades and decades of experience, helped us make sense of oil prices going negative. What does that mean? And what is the outlook for oil? By the way, I would suggest that Tom's uh, statements on May 1st, that oil would go back to the low 30s, uh, if not 40s, and that was the sweet spot, have proven to be almost 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom's brilliant, uh, and I'm thrilled that we had that chance to talk with him. General Lori Robinson uh, talked to us about a little bit about NORTHCOM and Northern Command, um, excuse me, Northern Command and then NORAD as she was commander. Uh, and then we began with uh, uh, an Omaha uh, person. And so we've almost gone full circle here coming back to Bruce, but Dr. Khan at the uh, University of Nebraska Medical Center, uh, which I believe Bruce has been involved with and supported as well, um, is uh, was our first guest uh, and talked about the next pandemic. Uh, and obviously that one was highly relevant to the feelings of anxiety we all had at the time. So, um, all right, with that, let me welcome Bruce. So Bruce, thanks for uh, taking the time to join me here. Yeah, thank you, uh, thank you, Vikram. So hopefully I can uh, add something to that rather illustrious list of uh, previous guests. Sure, well, I'm sure you can. Uh, but I'm gonna start by, t by sharing a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of how we met. Uh, so for those that don't know, I was visiting Omaha one of my first trips and uh, a dear personal friend, actually a couple of dear friends, uh, decided that they would have a little business gathering uh, of Omaha's business leaders and put them around a table and let me spew on about my thinking relating to China. This was around the, my first book, Boom Bustology. And as I was delivering my talk uh, and sort of saying, all right, you know, the Chinese economy is overbuilt. They've maybe had too much construction and, oh, well, I wouldn't want to be in the supply chain to China. Uh, I probably wouldn't want to be in commodities, maybe not mining, probably not Australia. And in the back of the room, uh, there was this individual sort of fidgeting and just couldn't contain himself with the questions he had. And of course, that was Bruce Grucock. Um, and so uh, Bruce uh, and I got to know each other beginning then. And he's come to my class at Yale. Uh, I've helped Kiwit with a bunch of things. I've taught at Kiwit University. Uh, and he's been a, been a good friend since then. Um, and so uh, that's how we met. But Bruce, I'm going to let you have a chance to defend yourself. Was that, actual, was that accurate in terms of how we met? That was very ac accurate. Uh, I, uh, I I think I rudely interrupted you not too long into your your yeah. talk, and I kept interrupting. And finally, I think you kind of glared at me at one point. It says, "Let me finish my talk, okay?" And I believe afterwards we had dinner. I think we sat together at dinner, and I continued to pepper you with questions. That it, uh, it's kind of a bad habit of mine about asking questions. And I I know at one point in my my keyword career, my I have two boys, and they were. 10, 11, 12, and they, they would, and I traveled a lot and go around to different Kiwit projects. And they asked me, said, dad, what do you do? What's your job? Yeah. And I said, I thought about it for a while. I finally, I said, I'm a question asker. Yep. I ask questions. And I, so I, it's a bad habit of mine. No, it's a good habit. I think actually, I think it's, it's, the, it's a wonderful one. In fact, I, uh, I suggested often to some of my students that just learn to ask good questions, just ask lots of questions, et cetera. So Bruce, I remember when we met, one of the first things you said, which I recognized as being quite humble uh, and, and perhaps maybe not as accurate, but you said, Vikram, I, we run this little construction company here in Omaha. 
And um, Key West not so little, and it's not just Omaha. So, you know, for those that don't know the Key West story, um, you know, it'd be interesting to hear you describe the unique elements of Kiewit. Obviously, Kiewit's involved in large construction projects and infrastructure, energy, power, etc. cetera. Um, but there's something particularly unique about Kiewit. And, you know, I was reading uh, the, uh, this book, uh, reviewing this book last night, um, and, you know, the introduction or the preface from Warren Buffett, I think, hit the nail on the head, at least from my experience. And I'd love you to talk about it. But Kiewit's yeah, it, 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 it's you. Our, our our ownership model, and 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 I at the risk of using the word unique because it's often overused, but our ownership model is a bit unique. We're broad-based employee ownership. We're not an ESOP. Uh, think of us like a large um, partnership, if you will. There's about three thousand employee owners of Kiewit. Uh, and we go through a process every year of adding new ones. It's, it's very much like a partner selection process, if you will. Typical age for somebody to get into our stock program is uh, 26, 27 years old. We have a demographic across our basically all job descriptions that we have, whether you're on projects or you're doing engineering work or staff people. Uh, it, it is uh, particularly we also in our business, uh, since we build stuff, we like to also have people, you don't have to have a college degree. We have lots of stockholders who are from, have a craft background. They started out as a carpenter or a, an iron worker and they became a superintendent for us. And we get them into the program, but this broad-based employee ownership model, uh, Mr. Kiewit started in, in about 1940, uh, has served us very, very well because the people are, you truly are an owner. You have to pay for the stock, nothing's given to you. There's an annual sales process that we go through and we want to make sure that the people who are contributing to the bottom line own appropriate portion of the company. When you leave employment, you have to sell it back to the company. I mean, the idea being is, look, you need to be contributing to our profits. Uh, you can't just be a retired person who's just kind of clipping coupons, if you will. Uh, so it's very unique, but it, it creates a sense of uh, of stewardship that I have, and certainly one of our va our values is is stewardship, and yep. understanding that uh, I was the inheritor of a of a great company, and and uh, as we've talked, and I talked to your class in, at Yale, um, I'm just basically the steward of Kiwit. I don't really own it. I'm just basically kind of taking care of Kiwit during my my tenure. And yeah. uh, so it really uh, creates a powerful motivation for the right behaviors by our people. I think they care more. They care more about what they do. They care more about ethical issues. They make sure that we're building high quality things because it's their company truly yep. in, the, in that sense. And so it, it drives a great behavior on our people's part. So Bruce, let, let's go to the, the Yale discussion because I think it's an interesting one. I remember, uh, so for those that uh, don't know it, I'm, my guess is most of you don't, uh, Bruce came to my class and we posed the question, should Kiwit go public? Um, and we had a bunch of students that sort of, I think, got it. They sort of understood the culture was unique, but there was one who didn't quite get it. Um, and there was a student that came forth and was like, Bruce, you're an idiot. What is going on? Take this thing public. You'll get a higher bump on the valuation. Everyone will benefit. You'll personally benefit. Others will benefit. So is Kiwit ever seriously entertained going public? 
never. It would absolutely destroy us and our culture that I've described. And, and plus, it, it, it would only benefit a small group, whoever happened to be a shareholder at that instant you went public. And, and why my predecessors would have had the same opportunity, but what kind of gives me the right, if you will, to have this group benefit from it and then post that, who knows how the stock would perform. So that just struck us as just un totally unfair. So it's, it's never come up for a conversation, serious conversation. And again, that stewardship notion, we have a, a unique culture. I think we're very proud of everything we do from the safety in our workplace, everything we do, it would absolutely destroy us. And yeah. so it's never been seriously considered. And, you know, you know, we, we uh, financially, we've done, done fine because I think our people stay focused on, on, on building things uh, the right way and we make some money. And it, so getting that one time financial pop from going public was never under consideration. And, and that one student I do remember was quite passionate. He just couldn't understand how we could leave all that money on the table, but to the benefit, to the, to the good news was the rest of your class kind of got it and appreciated, I think that what it would do to the culture. Well, you'd be interested to hear. He, he did go off to become an investment banker um, and ended up, I think, at one point during a downdraft getting cut. Uh, so, uh, yeah, who knows what that is. And I is. think part of, part of you mentioned being, getting cut during the downdraft. One of the things that I think I'm, I'm particularly proud of in today's environment with this whole pandemic, um, you know, we never we have not laid off anybody. Our business is still quite good. I mean, we're having, I guess we're deemed an essential service but uh, we haven't laid anybody off or furloughed people. And, and part of it was, look, people in our business, we truly are just a service business. They really are our, our best, uh, best asset. And I know that may sound a little contrite, but it's, it, it, they truly are our, our best asset. And, and we work hard to get the right ones. We train them, we teach them, we give them all sorts of great experiences. So they're pretty dang valuable to us. And the last thing we want to do is just say, well, you know, times are going to be tough for a while. So let's, let's do some layoffs so we the good news is we haven't had to and wouldn't wouldn't have contemplated doing it yeah and bruce talk about people because kiwit uh, the investment you make in your people obviously as you've said just time wise you don't want to cut them for short time disruptions but kiwit university i mean i've been involved there's a huge training program you spend I mean, kiwit spends a large dollar sum on making sure they continue to invest in their people. I mean, your internship program is quite large. I mean, we, in fact, there was some internship news on the, the TV this morning or radio this morning. Um, talk to us about people and how you think about investing it because it's an investment, really. Uh, you know, I, and again, every every company has value statements and whatnot, mission statements, whatever. And ours, ours is pies, people, integrity, excellence and stewardship and people's first. And, and so I think we, we starting with our internship program, something we're really quite proud of. We have about 800 interns on board this summer. Now, obviously, because of the pandemic, that's caused us to re, uh, rejigger the program a little bit. Uh, we have the first three weeks are going to be done virtually, and then we're going to get them out on projects and whatnot. And these are paid internships, and, and uh, the kids get to go out after their uh, sophomore year, typically, I think sometimes freshman year going in engineering school and, and get to contribute. And we try to make it a very meaningful sort of experience for them. And it's, it, from our perspective, it's a bit of an extended interview to yep. say, hey, which ones do we like and going to fit our culture and, and like the type of work we do? And, and it's also for them as well. Do I want to work for this company? Do I want to work in this industry? 
but uh, we have anywhere, I think last year, we actually had a thousand interns. Oh, wow. Good. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a great program for us. And once we get them on board um, and people start working for us full time, uh, we have a very structured program and we call it modestly Kiwit University. We have a nice facility. Uh, we bring in people from all across the continent. We work basically across the US, Canada, a little bit in Mexico. Uh, to a very structured sort of a program. Some of it is technical sort of training that we want to continue as continuing education, if you will. Some of it is the so-called soft skill training, which by the way, are really hard. Uh, and, and so it's, but it's a very structured program throughout the, uh, their career. And as they advance in different parts of their career, we, we obviously the curriculum changes. Vikram, uh, you've been a part of one of our programs that really kind of develop in our, our senior most leaders in, uh, You've, you've talked and, and presented there. So it's a commitment we make because our business is very cyclical. It, it ebbs and flows and, and it's very tempting sometimes when business gets tough uh, to, uh, to cut programs like this. They seem like simple things we had to cut back on. Uh, the problem is, is that because it's cyclicality, I don't know what the future in our business is going to hold two, three, four, five years from now. And I need to keep the training going constantly because uh, and I might turn around three or four years from now and say, hey, I need some people and trained in, in the way we want to do business, understand our culture, our ethics, expectations. They're not, they're not there if you've or you haven't had the training opportunities for them. So we, we keep a, a constant focus on that because, like I said, we're essentially a service business and selling the services and experience of our people. And, you know, we're going to be doing probably record revenue this year. We'll do about $12 billion this year in revenue across kind of all the spectrum of, of construction. Uh, we don't do single family homes and, and strip malls, although not many strip malls are going to be built anymore probably, but uh, we do all sorts of things all across the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. So first talk about, let's, let's transition to the current sort of world we're in. The pandemic, it hasn't hurt you? I mean, you've sort of, it seems like you're saying you're gonna have a record year uh, construction projects. I know in certain geographies were put on hold at least temporarily, um, but you know, doesn't seem to be impacting. Yeah, we, we, I think we handled it pretty darn well. And, and so we probably have 30, 35,000 employees, including craft workers that work for us. And then our subcontractors work for us have that many, that number and more. I've been very pleased by the um, limited number of positive cases. It's like 150. And, and I think part of it is two things. One, I think it's just structural. Our work's outdoors and, and, and people don't tend to be, we're doing social distancing just by the nature of our work or if a person is operating in a piece of equipment by themselves, so they don't have the, the, of the exposure, I think. But we also in our offices, um, you know, we, we shut down and people work from home uh, and, and that's work proven to be pretty darn effective for us. Um, slowly kind of reopening in, in our offices and, um, but, and also we, uh, we set up a special task force to deal with it, the issues of how to deal with it at the job site, how to deal with it, people working from home, um, even to the point that some of our owners uh, some of the state DOTs in particular called us and said, How, hey, what, what advice should we give the other contractors that are working and, and actually took some of our, our, uh, our plans. And I think we're fortunate being here in Omaha and have great access to the University of Nebraska Medical Center. They have some 
world-class experts in this area, you know, kind of started years ago with the Ebola thing and others. And um, so we've been able to tap into that to help us devise, you know, yep. best practices and things of that nature. So yeah, we, yeah. it's been great for us. We've, we had a number of jobs that were shut down temporarily. Uh, I just saw a report just this morning. Uh, it's now just a small handful, but they all have a schedule from when they're going to reopen. And even in the New York City area, uh, where we're doing some work, um, we were able to do, able to work, and and that's been surprisingly good. The stats coming out of the greater New York City area, where we've got some projects, have been been uh, been been pretty darn good. Yeah. So. There's also, you, you talked about departments of transportation, sort of local governments, if you will, state. I mean, do you worry about their budgets? Ultimately, doesn't that budget come through to fund these programs that you're building? And no, you certainly, yeah. No, we, we're, 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 we are, obviously it is a point of some concern for us. Uh, you know, we have a very robust backlog of projects right now. And, and, and it's interesting because at any one time, we have a backlog of about two years worth of our revenue. So theoretically, if we never took another job, we're out of business in two years. But yes, we're our concern. I mean, people weren't driving. There was no gas tax being collected. Uh, uh, some of the states and low, uh, municipalities use um, sales tax revenues and special dedicated funds of that nature. Clearly, sales tax collections going down. So yeah, it, it's very much an issue um, in that uh, in, for the public works folks. And, and I, I don't know. I actually have a call later this morning to talk about you know, from federal level, what kind of help may be coming on, on the infrastructure side. I, I think I'm hopeful uh, that, you know, the political folks will understand that, you know, almost all of our construction jobs are very well-paying jobs. Uh, they pay, you know, I mean, well-paying jobs. And, and that, you know, it's some critical infrastructure that's being built. And so when you spend the money, you actually have something to show for it. And it's, I hope that, uh, you know, the, uh, the famous story from the bridge to nowhere up in Alaska getting funded, uh, unfortunately gets thrown up like as an example of pork barrel sorts of the projects, but far, believe me, that is far and away the, uh, the exception and, and that really doesn't happen much anymore. And so, uh, more, and uh, so anyway, I, I am concerned, um, but hopefully that, uh, state and local governments understand how critical getting these projects done are, that the jobs that are created in the economy, the ripple effect of, you know, all the stuff we buy, the supplies that we buy, uh, the, that we have a large number of subcontractors that work for us. And many of these are very, very small businesses. So hopefully there'll be a sense of, hey, let's keep this industry going. I know there's other industries that have been, been hurt dramatically. We have not. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether the political class and particularly in Washington has any kind of courage, if you will, to do some things. I mean, the, um, you know, the federal gas tax was put in back in the fifties to fund the original uh, interstate highway system that Eisenhower envisioned uh, been successful, but unfortunately it hasn't been, uh, the amount per gallon hasn't changed since 1993. Is that right? Wow. 27 years later, we still have the same dollars per cent per gallon, if you will. Uh, so imagine 27 years of inflation. Um, you have fuel economy dramatically better on cars. And, and uh, you know, I think people trying to figure out how do you deal with uh, electric vehicles? Because the road doesn't know whether the car is powered by electricity or gasoline. And so yeah. I think there's some interesting public policy questions that have got to figure out how are we going to continue to pay, pay for infrastructure 
there's been a over the years, recent years, local municipal and state or not state so much, but uh, county, city governments have taken it upon themselves and, and asked the voters there said, hey, will you pay for this? Seattle is a great example where they have a number of of different taxes that were passed on licensing and other things to fund a tens of billions of dollars build out of their light rail system. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's traveled in the Seattle area knows that congestion there is is horrendous. But the people of this of uh, King County said, okay, let's tax ourselves, pay, we'll pay for it, uh, and, and very little help from the federal government. Yeah, it's interesting with the gas tax. I'm sitting here, I'm in my office in Lexington, I look out the window, and there are a couple of Tesla chargers there. Um, and I assume I'm paying for them through tax dollars to the town of Lexington that pays for the electricity because someone's paying for that. Right. Yes. So, so you got to imagine there's some weird subsidy. Do you, could you imagine a tax on electric vehicles that sort of a usage tax or something, or do you think? Yeah, the, the popular one they talk about is vehicle miles traveled. And, and then you would somehow submit usage usage. And, you know, but I think it raises a whole bunch of uh, uh, privacy issues. I think people are worried about. Sure. Um, and uh, so I, I don't I don't know. And how would you actually assess people? Would you send them a bill every year for how many uh, miles you travel? <laughs> pretend to know. Yeah. But let's go back to infrastructure. Um, this has got to be a great time to invest in infrastructure. The you know the country's suffering economically. The federal government should be stepping forth to supply demand when there's a demand drop off. Uh, this is logical. Uh, is there any reason it won't happen aside from politics? I mean, tell us what you know about infrastructure. I mean, in fact, one of the questions that came in here uh, from actually from Mike McCarthy <laughs> was about infrastructure. But, um, you know, by the way, everyone else, feel free to put in questions through the Q&A tab and I'll keep monitoring it. But Bruce, what's the outlook for infrastructure? Shouldn't we get a program? Well, we, we should. And, and it, it, you know, there's been a number of unfortunately failed attempts uh, uh, the, the, the P3 model was one that was very popular, is uh, called public-private partnerships, where there would be all this private money available to fund these projects. And um, we, we've participated in it. Uh, the Goffles, New Goffles Bridge in New York City is an example. That is a P3 project. Um, the, the problem I've had, the problem I think that the, the states or the whom, whatever government entity involved is finally is figured out is you got to pay for it. The public private, the P3s are basically just a financing scheme. And there's plenty of money out there in the private sector that's willing to uh, put money into these things, but they got to have some sense. How do you pay it back? It's like, it's like I, my example I always use, it's like taking out a second mortgage on your house to remodel your kitchen. You end up with a brand new kitchen and that's wonderful, but you also have a second mortgage. You got to pay it back. So I think that model has kind of, everybody thought it was like a free lunch, I think, and it's obviously not. Um, it, it is just, it, it's bothersome to me that the political folks, um, you know, the no tax people, and it, it doesn't really matter what political stripe you are. Uh, no, we can't raise the gas tax. No, we can't do this at the federal level. And, and clearly there's projects and things that need to be funded at the federal level. Um, but that's again why the voters of King County said, hey, I'll tax myself. Uh, Maricopa County and Phoenix have done the same thing. Uh, other jurisdictions have said, hey, I will, I think 30 some states have raised state gas taxes because they say, I, I got to get, 
my infrastructure back up to uh, you know standards of, of 2020 i mean if unfortunately if you travel in many many parts of, of europe you certainly go to china you see all the brand new infrastructure we are we're dealing with 1960s 1970s vintage infrastructure and you know the civil engineering association comes out every year to make a grade of it and I don't know if it's graded as a D or a D minus. It really yeah. doesn't matter. So I, I, but the political class, at least at the federal level, just they're just deathly afraid of stepping out and doing something more dramatic. But the need will not go away. The infrastructure in this country will continue to uh, deteriorate. I mean, uh, what about the the subway tunnels in, or the, in the tunnels going into New York City? Um, yeah. No, no, doubt it needs to be done. In you know, if you want to wait 10 more years, 20 more years, yeah. it will just continue to deteriorate. So I, the need is 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 big and, and it's kind of across the country everywhere that we travel uh, or after work. It's uh, it's very neat. And I, I, you know, and I have conversations with the political class privately. They will tell you, oh, yeah, I agree, Bruce, you're exactly right. But I said, OK, so how are you going to pay for it? And then they that's where they get yeah. uh, cold feet. Bruce, what about mass transit? I mean, so we're talking mass transit. I got to imagine this, at least temporarily with the pandemic, people are thinking, oh, actually, people don't really want to clamor in into crowded rail cars to get taken to an urban dense environment. I'll work from home. I'll take a car. I'll do something. Are you seeing any signs that that may actually be the case? Meaning on the margin, sort of, hey, let's put the mass transit on ice for a little bit. We're not going there until we see how this plays out. No, we're not. Uh, they, they uh, you know, we just uh, signed up a big contract in uh, Phoenix uh, for a big extension and uh, going south from the Phoenix airport. Um, and so I, I, I think not. I think uh, people are going to figure out that, you know, maybe it won't be as crowded as some of the uh, East Coast subway systems. But I, I think that um people are going to return back to, to some fashion of, of of usage and whatnot i mean obviously the there's going to be some that are just going to no matter what they're going to not want to uh, take yeah. the subway uh, you know there will be it'll be really interesting to figure out how much of the work from home stuff becomes permanent um i i think that um i found that um, you know, some for some of our, our uh, jobs, it, it's okay, and it probably people are equally productive, but you miss that social interaction. I, I worry that you get a generation of people, all these new people we bring on board, and I bring on a young engineer to come work for us, and they said, oh, by the way, your job for the first three years, you're going to be working from home. They won't get a good sense of our culture. They won't be able to create relationships, sure. uh, I think, and I give Mike McCarthy credit for making this observation that I, I think it, the work from home for many jobs stifles innovation, creativity, um, you know, that ability to kind of just kind of walk down the hall or walk over to somebody in the cube next to you and say, hey, I, I'm, I got a little problem. What do you think about this? And you sort of have that uh, spontaneous sort of uh, interaction. And yep. if everything's were done with this fashion, uh, it just doesn't do this. So I, I'm hopeful that the scientists will figure out the vaccine thing and we can get back to some sense more where we were, uh, recognizing that some parts of the world will change and people will decide, hey, you know, this does maybe better work from home or, or people will do it part-time. That may take, interestingly, may take some pressure off some of the transit, transportation sorts of issues. Uh, you know, some of the pictures you saw of, of freeways where there was nobody driving on them, 
it actually is in a way for several of our big infrastructure road type projects, uh, the states, the owners of state DOTs would co have come to us and said, hey, because there's so less tr little traffic, I'm gonna, you can shut down lanes more often. You don't have to work just at night. Yeah. Um, so there's actually been a little, ironically, a little benefit to us. Oh, great. Yeah, no, it makes sense, right? You would imagine that. So Bruce, we've got a couple of questions coming in here, but before we get to one of them, I'm going to just ask a, a more fun question, which is, uh, what do you do for fun? Well, I, uh, uh, I like to fly fish. I've got access to a little place out in Colorado, and I'm kind of learning the intricacies of, of fly fishing uh, for trout, uh, which has been kind of fun. Uh, Occasionally, I'll go swing the golf club. Um, oh, I fly. We like to kind of travel a bit. Yep. So, uh, you know, I don't have any crazy uh, hobbies. I'm not into skydiving or anything too crazy. Right. I, uh, uh, but it's, uh, I got, uh, I, I like being outdoors. I do yep. a little hunting and as well as I like being outdoors. And so uh, I try to find every opportunity I can to do some outdoor activity. Yep, got it. Well, uh, the, I, rem I remember going fishing with you once in Colorado. That was fun. Yeah. I did manage to catch one. Yeah, you, were, you, you, you have to practice a bit more, Vikram, before I you... I do a lot more practice, not a little. Uh, all right, so this, this question came in, Bruce, is about diversity in construction. Um, and so let me ask it this way, because you did come to my class. One of the times you visited uh, my class, we talked about gender diversity at Kiwit. And, you know, you sort of talked about the pool problem, if you will, right, which is we're getting our share from the pool, but the pool is very male-dominated in, in some of these engineering professions. And I know that you've got this Kiwit Discovery Center that uh, is, is getting built or is yeah. being uh, in Omaha uh, or is built or somewhere there. Uh, but anyway, talk about diversity upstream, sort of the efforts being made uh, and diversity, however you want to talk about it. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's unfortunate in our industry that it is male dominated. And it's obviously been that way for a long, long time. And, and it's, it's something that's um, if you go to if you go to the engineering schools that, and we recruited about a hundred different colleges around the U.S. and Canada, uh, some of the even the bigger schools with with well-established programs, maybe 15% of the um, students in the engineering colleges are uh, are women. Uh, I am kind of kind of proud. I went to Colorado School of Mines, and I'm actually quite, quite proud of the fact that they're at 33% for an entirely. STEM related STEM type school, but that's sort of an outlier. But 15%, and and so that's the pool. Now, obviously, women are half the workforce. So what's what's going on here, and and how can you um, get kids to to be interested in STEM careers, specifically engineering type careers? Uh, and the problem is you is you have to kind of start in high school and be deliberate to get to have those fundamental science classes, those fundamental math classes. Uh, engineering, it's hard, uh, both to, to, to learn in, in, uh, in college. And so you have to really be dedicated and you have to come into school prepared. So I, I think trying to, um, you know, so we in the, our industry, recruiting people to work in the type of work we do, civil engineers, construction engineering, uh, mechanical engineers and the like, 
uh, we all are scrambling for that small pool of say 15% of the graduates are women. So we all uh, are fighting over a small pool that's not growing in general. I think even engineering degrees awarded in the United States is not going up. And so we're all fighting over this limited pool. So what you got to do somehow is increase the pool and you got to start at a much younger age. And now, obviously, there's tens of thousands of high schools around the country, and we, we as a one company can't do anything about it. But, but here in Omaha, we, we are going to do something about it. Uh, uh, we're we're uh, are funding a uh, new uh, facility here called the Kiwit Discovery Center. We're the lead donor for it. It's modeled after the Exploratorium, which is, is in San Francisco, and, and it's right on, on the wharf. And, and it really, I would encourage any of you to have a chance to go visit visit it. Uh, it really tries to educate or excite and create interest by uh, kids. It's targeted kids, say, from age 8 to 18. It's basic physics, basic electricity, motion, light, bio, basic biology thing with some very simple hands-on exhibits. So it's not a walk-through museum where you can't touch and do stuff. It's very interactive. The, the, the exhibits are pretty simple. I had a great experience there. Uh, I was um, pulling around with an electrical uh, device that, that I think makes what they call a Jacob's Ladder. And I was sitting there and making it half work and, and uh, a young girl came up behind me and she must have been 10, 11, 12 years old. And she said, what's this? And so together we read the, uh, the description of it. And she said, wow, she said, can I try it? I said, sure. So, you know, she gets up and she starts to play with this exhibit. I don't know what, if that will excite her to become an electrical engineer or not, but I think giving young people the opportunity to see what, how the physical world works uh, is, is, is something hopefully we can uh, get them excited about it and understand what it takes to become, a, get into a STEM career. And hopefully that then over you know, obviously it's a long-term effort uh, to get kids excited about it. Uh, we'll get, we'll increase that pool of people in STEM careers and, and increase the pool of people want to be engineers and whatever. And again, whether, whether women or people of any color or whatever, uh, hopefully we can get people excited about these careers because there's certainly in the country a need for more people with, with STEM-based STEM uh, degrees um, so anyway, we're, we're funding this and, and being the lead donor for it. We're going to break ground later this, yeah. this summer. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. All, all privately funded too, as a matter of fact. The number of, number of uh, other major folks around Omaha have stepped up and it's all privately funded. That's fabulous. Uh, Bruce, what I loved about when you came to our, my class and we had that lunch after with about 10 students, uh, you know, you turn the tables on them, which I thought was fabulous. So all these students, uh, to be fair, highly idealistic, liberal, Northeastern, uh, generally well-to-do students um, saying, Bruce, why don't you have more women? Bruce, why don't you have, why are you not more diverse? And, you know, at that lunch, you literally turned around and you're like, okay, I'm ready to do it. What do I do? And they were all sort of scratching their heads saying, uh, maybe you got to start earlier. Maybe you got to get kids. We don't know. It's a tough problem. It's and that a was a problem. great learning opportunity for them. So, yes. yep. uh, so uh, another question uh, here about, um, well, it's about climate change and your energy business, but let me frame it differently. Um, 
Kiwit has a large business exposed to uh, the oil and gas sector, energy generally, uh, the conversion of um, hydrocarbons into electricity, et cetera. Uh, what do you think the risks are for this business going forward, given the increasing attention on environmental concerns, et cetera? Well, let me talk about the electricity generation piece of it. Um, we, for a number of years, have been the largest builder of gas-fired uh, electric power plants. Um, you know, the, the, everybody knows the science around burning of, of uh, natural gas as opposed to coal. Uh, it is um, um, far more, uh, uh, less carbon uh, intensive for no doubt. Um, but the technologies have improved dramatically. The, uh, the efficiencies of these turbines are, are, are incredible from where, what the work we were doing even five or six years ago. So I think there will be that kind of a build out in, uh, throughout the country will continue for a number of years. Uh, we're also in the renewables business, uh, putting up large uh, uh, wind farms and also some solar. You know, the problem that, again, this is where the laws of the physics aren't gonna change. I mean, it gets dark at night and the solar fields aren't gonna work. Uh, battery, good battery storage is still a long way away. Uh, and the wind doesn't always blow. And so and the problem is sometimes the places where the wind blows a lot, say, for example, uh, parts of Wyoming or West Texas, there's not a lot of people live there. So you have a transmission issue getting the power to where people live. So I, I think that that will have will continue over time. I, it's unfortunate that uh, nuclear power, which is totally carbon free, um, is um, there was a bit of a renaissance here a few years ago. Unfortunately, the projects that got started have failed financially very miserably. There's only one new nuclear plant being built down in Georgia. I don't see when, if another one getting started uh, is gonna be a long way away. So I, I think on the power side, we're gonna come as a country, and unless there's some break, dramatic breakthrough in battery power, uh, storage. Uh, I, I think we're going to have this mix of, of uh, gas-fired uh, wind and solar, uh, you know, I'll call it legacy nuclear as well. Uh, sure. on, the, on, the, on the gas side of it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You, you talk to people about what, what needs to be built in, in, you know, our fossil fuels in particular going to go away anytime soon. And obviously the folks I talk to in the oil companies think not. Um, and have some pretty compelling statistics around it. Uh, you know, um, I, it's hard to imagine in, in a decade or two that, you know, we could be using a lot less uh, fossil fuels, oil and gas, but um, gasoline and converted to gasoline for cars. But um, still, uh, there's still going to be need for replacements or upgrading of refineries. Uh, oil well depletions are going to have to continue to drill for oil. Uh, before this uh, price of oil dropped through the floor, we were pretty active in the Permian Basin in West Texas because the nature of the geology there is they have to keep drilling to keep finding more oil and gas. So I see that, uh, you know, there's always going to be a, a substantial business there. Interestingly, though, the other thing that happens is the um, uh, natural gas being the feedstock for so many other things that we commonly use in, in society. And we're building a large olefins plant down in Texas now. Uh, and olefins are the building block for so many different things. And a guy showed me one time a chart about all of the common products that we use uh, 
that come start with and come from natural gas, uh, golf balls, uh, diapers, you know, all the plastic water bottles, uh, things of that nature. And it goes on and on and on. So I think there's always going to be, is, is society has a need for those kinds of things. Yep. Um, you know, you're going to see the chemical side of the oil and gas industry uh, probably be uh, uh, flourish for, for a while. Uh, and I think it's just hard to understate the um, what's happened in the United States economy as a result of, of cheap natural gas in particular, what it's meant for the price of electricity, ultimately what it's meant for the price of the, these feedstocks that are for these chemicals and people building plants in the United States that might otherwise have been built perhaps somewhere in the Middle East. So I, that's a long convoluted answer, Vikram, but I, I think it's still one that you know, it's, it's, it's got its headwinds and challenges, but I think both from the electricity side and the oil and gas chemical side, it's going to be a, a, a substantial business for us in, in going forward. You think the LNG business remains a topic of focus, Bruce? I mean, I remember when you sent me down to Cold Point to go see it, and I was just overwhelmed by the complexity having, you know, walked around. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's a complex, a complex uh, construction uh, deal. So I would imagine, given the plethora or the, the volume of natural gas resource we have here in the United States, that, you know, movement of it outbound may prove to be economic. Um, oh, there's no doubt. I, I think that there's maybe a, a short-term hiccup this year, but I, I think the cheap natural gas in the United States uh, and, and our ability to get these plants built um, and, and then export the LNG. I mean, the understanding other parts of the world, Japan, for example, has no natural resources. Korea, very limited. So if you want to get them off of coal, which they've used coal, uh, they're not going to do nuclear. Uh, they got to get the gas to feed probably natural gas fired things. China as well. China is, is, is uh, natural gas poor. Uh, they're going to have to move that direction. India as well. So I, I think as, as parts of the world decide if they're going to follow the U.S.'s trend and moving away from coal and moving more to natural gas fired, they're going to have to get it from somewhere because a lot of parts of the world don't have it. Uh, you know, certainly the Middle East, uh, places like Qatar, um, Australia, but the United States, uh, we could be very, very competitive of shipping natural LNG around the world. We, we built the one there at Cove Point, Maryland. We're building one right now south of Lake Charles. Uh, Louisiana with in, in, in various levels of conversation with clients uh, on two or three others. So I, I think it's going to be, there's going to be a build out and it's going to be a, a, um, a great home for, for the natural gas. And I think you know, the oil companies are looking at natural gas and L, ultimately LNG as uh, a big part of their future portfolio. Got it. Good. Uh, I got a couple more questions. But I'm going to sneak in another fun one here, Bruce. Uh, favorite uh, book or movie? Well, I'm I'm probably way behind the times right now, but I'm um, uh, I'm in the middle of, of Breaking Bad, and oh. I lived in New Mexico for a while early in my career, and yeah. so I was pretty familiar with Albuquerque, and so I, I'm finding Breaking Bad to be sort of kind of an interesting sort of miniseries thing. Um, you know, I'm reading a book right now um, about China that's uh, called The Hundred Year Marathon written by a guy named Michael Pillsbury. It's um, gonna be a um, kind of interesting thesis that he has about China uh, and, and um, 
So I, I, I tend to read, I don't have, I actually also just finished the, uh, the biography of Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. Ron Chernow. Um, yeah. It, it, I found the interesting, his take on, 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 on some of the, the political back and forth between uh, the Hamilton crowd and the Jefferson crowd in, in some of the ways that they uh, communicated was through written publications and pamphlets and whatnot, but they weren't very nice. It, it sort of reminds me a little bit of some of the political rhetoric that goes on now on Twitter. Uh, but if you read the book and you read the things that were written down about person's character or lack of character, um, I, it, it, I found this kind of an interesting comparison to uh, what goes on today. Yeah, no, that's a great book. I love it too. So, okay. Um, this question, I'm going to twist it a little bit and form it in my own words, Bruce, but I know you've been involved with the Business Roundtable. Um, and there has been this emerging debate over the past, let's call it a year or two, that's, since it's gotten real prominence, between shareholders and stakeholders. Uh, and the idea being that the purpose of the corporation, which had historically been focused on shareholders, has needed to move more towards a stakeholder-oriented frame of thinking. So it's really important not just to maximize shareholder returns, but you've got to pay attention to your employees. You've got to pay attention to your community. You've got to pay attention to the environment, etc. So I know this might be an interesting question for far more controversial question for other companies, but I want to get your take on it because there was that business roundtable letter that you did sign. Yes. And I, when I, you would part, I would part of drafting the language, but you know, as the language came out, I looked at it, I said, um, that's just good business. Um, I mean, in our case, obviously our shareholders are our employees. Um, I've talked earlier about, you know, the employees being our most important asset and the, and the importance of, uh, of, of training them and developing them uh, because we're a service business. I mean, if treating our clients properly, uh, you know, treating our, our uh, subcontractors that work for us, suppliers that we buy stuff from, and, and being a good ethical and, and be concerned about them as well. And all of those issues that to me, it's just good business. But when I read it, it said, this is kind of a no brainer. This just looks like good business to me. And I, I was a little disheartened that in, in some places it got turned around. Uh, I, I think that to say, well, gee, the shareholder is not the most important thing anymore. Well, well, wait a minute. If, if I don't have good employees and I don't have good relations with my customers or my clients or treat my suppliers well, my business isn't going to go well and my shareholders are not going to be happy with the results. So I, I, I was unfortunate that I think it got kind of turned around or perverted in perhaps a way, but I looked at it as kind of a no brainer. It's just good business. Yeah. It's interesting because I think the debate is misframed Bruce. I mean, my view is, it frames it as shareholders versus stakeholders. Yes. When in reality, I think the bigger problem, and I'd love your thoughts on this, are I think it's this myopic short-termism that seems to domineer everyone's thinking. In the short term, it may in fact be a trade-off. Today, I can either maximize profits or hurt the environment uh, or save the environment. So if I dump stuff, okay, I get better profits. But in the long run, they align. And so is it not really just an issue of horizon? And Kiwit maybe as a longer term thinking enterprise can see that alignment. And so 
Yeah. I'm just sort of curious whether you think short-termism might be the problem. Yeah, I, I think that's a good observation, Vikram. I, I could very well be uh, because, you know, we as a private company and, and you know, we're, you know, we're, we're making decisions that affect us personally uh, and, and whatnot and, and understand that we are in this thing for the long term. We want our, our typical folks, when they get into the Kiwit stock program at say, age 26, 27, 28, our turnover is very, very low and they stay with us their entire career. And so we can make longer term uh, investments and make longer term sort of decision making uh, and, and not be worried about quarterly earnings for sure or, or even annual earnings because, you know, you're in the thing for the long haul. Uh, if we, we do quarterly statements, and uh, but I couldn't tell you how much our what our quarterly profits are because it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, you know, because we are in this thing for the long haul in the ups and downs and vagaries of any one quarter, I kind of don't care. Uh, but I, I think that's a good observation on your part that maybe some of them, the, you know, people all, uh, the big company, everybody talks about wanting to be long-term focused, move away from quarterly focus, but um, it doesn't happen. As the end of a quarter is going to be coming up here in June and people are going to be, uh, you know, oh, well, what was your quarterly earnings and did you miss by a penny? a share and, you know, then bad things happen to your stock, I guess. So I'm so grateful that I work in a private company and the way we're owned just, yeah. I think allows us to be smarter about our business over the long run. Yeah. This, <laughs> I got to ask this one question that's just got, it's got me chuckling a little bit. Um, how much rent do you charge Warren Buffett? <laughs> I, I guess you know, for, for, for those that don't know Warren Buffett uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway is a tenant in the Kiwit Plaza uh, and so technically Bruce is or was uh, when he was running the show I guess Rick is now uh, Warren Buffett's landlord so the question is how much rent do you charge and could you raise it <laughs> you know I, I I'm embarrassed to say I quite honestly I don't know I do know he pays on he pays on a current basis so he's kept up on that uh, I actually don't know what I, what he pays him. He's, uh, um, I do use that joke that I am Warren Buffett's landlord is our claim to fame. Um, and his, most of he owns, has one floor of the Kiwi Plaza, which he's, uh, started off with having about a quarter of one floor. Um, and I would tell you, I've been to his office a, a number of times and he's, uh, most of what is advertised about his sort of folksy, uh, behavior itself is is true and you go to his office and it's quite modest and it sort of has that uh, absent-minded professor feel to it yep. with piles of paper and books and things scattered around the office and uh, uh, I think one of the first times I went up there to see him he did have a television in the corner of but I, I believe it was a um, it had a, it was a tube television yeah and I think just not in the last number of years, though, he finally did break down and buy a flat screen. Yep, there you go. Does he get a better parking spot than you? In the book? Uh, we're back. He's got a nice parking spot there, and uh, but uh, he's uh, uh, and still comes into the office uh, on, a, on a very regular basis. He's what, 88 years old, 89, and uh, looks in pretty good health. And, 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 you know, very obviously still got mentally, he's got all there and, but yeah, he's got a nice parking spot. We did get him close to the door. There he's go. been a tenant since he's been a tenant in the building since the we opened in 1962. Is that right? Interesting. Um, so Bruce, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, uh, as we only have a couple minutes here uh, left, but I want to talk a little bit about that 
magazine piece. You referenced it earlier, but that magazine ad that was sort of crumpled in your bag at our business ethics class at Yale that you pulled out. Uh, because I do think this, this question of stewardship is probably broadly defined, um, is really one that I, I think is, is part of the legacy that you set at Kiwit with a leadership. And I know it was part of a generation before you and Rick and others will follow yeah. it after you. But um, maybe describe that actual ad. I mean, I can do it, but I think yeah. From the, the the ad that it's been it's been in a number of magazines and, and uh, publications. It's for a very high end watch, and it typically has in the ad either a, a father with a uh, with a, a son who might be twelve years old, or a, or a mother with a daughter who's twelve years old. And it, it's the advertisement for this watch. And it says, you don't actually own this watch. You merely take care of it for the next generation. And when I saw that ad, I said, yeah, that, that kind of in a different way captures the Kiewit's notion of stewardship that I don't actually own Kiewit. Uh, yeah, the, I don't actually own it. I'm taking care of it for the next generation of, of young people coming up. And one of the things I've enjoyed the most about my job has been interfacing with our uh, the younger folks in our business and, and particularly the young ones that become a part of the stock program and you can it can talk to them and, and try to impress upon them the unique culture and, and what they're a part of and I get great questions and uh, so that's always fun for me to do that and I think it's part of me I'm sure in the ads uh, the mother or father is is passing on the uh, some words of wisdom to their children and maybe in a in a similar vein I'm trying to do that when I speak to our younger stockholders about some of the special things about Kiwit and what the responsibilities are that go with being a, a Kiwit stockholder. Yeah. So Bruce, as you transition, I don't know if that's what the right word is, but uh, you know you're no longer chief executive. Uh, you're just chairman. Just I don't know what that means, but. Uh, how are you going to spend your time? Figure that out too. <laughs> is it more of this sort of cultural uh, stewardship logic? Is it? Uh, are you going to spend more time on strategy? Tell me how you're going to spend your time, or or do you slowly uh, transition towards uh, doing less and less? Yeah, I, I've got a few some things I'm doing outside of Kiwit that I'm going to be able to spend some more time on, which are going to be be fun. I think this uh, leading this effort on this Kiwit Discovery Center for uh, is going to take uh, take some time but i i and and the ceo took over for me rick is we have a great relationship and we talk and he can reaches out to me for advice on the things and i i certainly appreciate that but i'm going to be focused on on some things on helping him identify future more senior leaders in the company i started a program here a couple years ago uh you know like picking and we would select up and coming leaders in their probably in their late 30s really trying to expose them to other things that go on in the world and try to expand their their horizons and and the things they need to think about our our business is way more complicated than it was when i started and they need to be more i'll say worldly or aware of things that go on in the world and help me impact our business so i'm going to continue to drive have those sorts of uh, programs going on matter of fact i have one next week uh that was going to be in in an in-person session to talk about all about China and we're now turned it around and we're going to make it a, a virtual call, but to really kind of get some um, different perspectives on, on China. And I've, I'm going to keep doing things like that to try to help identify future leaders uh, and, and hopefully get them uh, spark a little intellectual curiosity. And also uh, uh, with Rick, um, I, I told him, I mean, Rick's in his early fifties. 
I said, now, congratulations on being CEO. So your most difficult and most important job you have, single thing to do, is finding your successor. Um, you know, we, I can never imagine a circumstance where we would go outside the company to um, uh, have the CEO that just would not work. And so, Rick, I'm going to help you with that and help uh, and identify the person and help maybe mentor and bring them along. And uh, I'm hopefully along the way, be a good chance to get out on some interesting projects and uh, just to keep my hand in it a little bit. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, too, we have uh, we have some great uh, outside board members, too, that I think uh, we're uniquely structured with our board, but uh, we've got some great outside board members that help give us some good outside perspectives on things. I know with certainly and we leaned on them with some of the issues around the pandemic yep. about what they were doing and what their advice that they had. So uh, anyway, I, I've got a number of things, I think, to keep my, myself busy. And uh, <laughs> Well, I, I, I would not doubt that at all, Bruce, given the, the curiosity you brought to at least all the conversations we've had. Uh, so I want to thank you, Bruce. Uh, we've sort of run out of time here, but thank you so much for your friendship. Thank you so much for uh, all the conversations we've had. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for sharing your time with everyone on this webinar call today. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you, Vikram. Be safe. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Have a nice day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Montramani's website at www.manshamani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.